Paul Tripp and uh, Tim Lane in their book, uh, How People Change. Uh, give us an example when we start to think about the cross of a chap called Joe. It's a scenario, really. Uh, Joe is someone who became a Christian five years ago, and initially, for those first three years, he, he was really quite a determined chap. Uh, he got up early to read the Bible and pray, quite happily enjoyed the discipline of that. Uh, he loved going to church to meet with his church family and would never, ever miss it. But for the two, past two years, he has struggled quite considerably with guilt, uh, he's grown distant from his Christian friends and lost the desire to go to church, lost the desire to talk to other people about Jesus. And in addition, he's been struggling with other things. He's spending way too much money on clothes. He says it just makes him happy. Uh, he is overeating, putting on weight. It helps him feel better, so he says. Now, if you ask Joe's friends, Joe's friends would say his problems started around about the same time that he missed a few of his quiet times. Remember, I'd said he'd been quite determined, getting up early, reading the Bible and praying. Now, when they initially pointed this out to him, he responded by redoubling his efforts, if you like, to read and pray. But for him in those times, those weeks, those months, it just did not feel the same as it used to in those initial few months. The Bible that once seemed really alive to him now just seemed really lifeless. And his prayers, which were once focused and passionate, were now replaced by these kind of spacious wanderings in his head. Now, what has happened to Joe? What's going on with Joe? Now, some might say, well, Joe became lazy and lost his discipline. He's not making the most of the means of grace that God has provided for people like us, weak people like us, to get to know him. Now, that may have impacted the situation, sure, but Joe's problems started way before that. Joe's problems started when he lost sight of the cross as the key to living the Christian life. And I think that's, as, as the book points out, that's what's behind both phases of Joe's Christian life. So for the first three years, when Joe was disciplined and diligent, from the outside looking in, you're thinking, this guy's doing really well as a Christian. But he wasn't. You see, he was saying and doing all the right things, but in his heart of hearts, he was doing it for himself, driven not by grace, nor by gratitude for what Christ has done, but almost out of a desire to prove himself to God and even to other people. Hey, God, you were really good at making the right decision to choose me for salvation. And to live up to all the kind of commendations and encouragements that he had been receiving from people in his church family. Now, when you do that, pride is taking root in your heart. And it only takes root when you've lost sight of the cross. What about the last two years? Well, his behavior has been very different to the previous three. From the outside looking in, you'd be saying, man, this guy's actually really struggling, and he is. But it's not because he stopped reading his Bible, as his friends might suggest, but because he's lost sight of the cross. He's weighed down with guilt and shame. Even though there is 
forgiveness and freedom in Jesus Christ. They are his possession already. But he's living like Jesus hasn't died for him. He's living like he's still under the weight of God's condemnation. Like justice is still coming. Now, I wonder if you see yourself in Joe's story. I do. I think you can replay that kind of scenario and see all sorts of different things that we do in life, whether things are going well and we're encouraged, or whether things are hard and we're struggling. In every facet of these, there's some indication that we can lose sight of the cross and then end up doing the good things, but for the wrong reasons and doing the bad things for obvious reasons. Many Christians begin the Christian life with a clear understanding of the need for a cross, but quickly lose sight of how central it is. But the cross is crucial to change. This is a useless diagram. Without the cross, the cross is crucial to change. Without it, change might just be skin deep. Behavior modification, uh, I mentioned last week, that's like putting an elastoplast on a broken arm. It's not going to fix the problem. But with the cross, with every recollection and personal apprehension of the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ, there is change. Change that is not skin deep, but soul deep. True sanctification. This is what this section of the real change model is all about. This is how we change, having recognized our sinful hearts and thought about the thorns that are produced last week. How do we change? Well, it starts by remembering two things. The first, our identity. Number one, our identity. Now, I'd like to take you to one short passage to Galatians chapter 2. So if you still have a Bible there, please open it up to Galatians 2. Very short, Galatians 2.20. Now, Galatians is written to reset the thinking of people who had forgotten what the gospel was and how it ought to shape their lives. In Galatians 2, Paul is saying something profound here about how the gospel changes who you are as a person. It changes your very identity and opens up for us a world of potential, of newness. Galatians 2.20 says this, I have been crucified with Christ. And I no longer live, but Christ lives in me. The life I now live in the body, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. Now, what does Paul say here? Well, I want to highlight three quick things for us just from this little passage. The first thing he says about our identity is that we have new life in Christ. I have been crucified with Christ? What does that actually mean? Well, Paul is not just saying that Jesus was crucified for him. He was. Neither is Paul just saying that he benefits from Christ's cross. He does. Paul is actually saying that when Christ was crucified, he was crucified as well. Christ died a very physical death. But it's true to say that Paul died spiritually with Jesus. And the same goes for all who put their faith and trust in Jesus. We are united to him, vitally united to him in his death by faith. 
And that's how Paul has come to have a new life. That's how we too can come to have new life. But that's not all. Paul goes on to say that when he died with Christ, he died to his old life, his old ambitions, his old values, even his old worries. The change the gospel brings is so comprehensive and complete that Paul would actually go on to say, I no longer live. I no longer live. The old Paul, he's gone. For all of his life, he'd been in the dominion of darkness, but now through Christ's death and through faith in that death, he has been transferred into Christ's kingdom and granted new life. So what Christ did to achieve that for Paul and for all who will believe in him, it permanently alters their identity, who they are and what they live for. It puts the cross of Christ smack dab into the middle of the picture. Yet we sometimes displace it. What else does this little passage tell us about who we are in Christ? We have a brand new status. It's the second thing. Viktor Belenko could explain this to you. Uh, Viktor Belenko was a Russian pilot during the Cold War era. And one day he took off on routine air maneuvers from a Russian airbase, but flew off radar and landed his Russian fighter jet on an American Air Force base in Japan. The first time a MiG had flown outside of Russian airspace, and the Americans were like, what kind of machine is this descending from the skies? They had never even seen one before. How happy they were to have a Russian defect at that point. Now, what happened to him? Well, Belenko was uh, duly debriefed, and then he was flown to America and was granted status as an American citizen. His, he had his identity completely changed, a brand new status. And that's what happens when you become a Christian. He's not an enemy anymore, he's a friend. Oh, he's a good friend. You, that's what happens when we become Christians. You, you change kingdoms, you're given a new identity, a new status. You're adopted, redeemed, you're forgiven. You're justified, you're sanctified, and will be glorified. Even tucked into this little verse, there's every reminder for us that as we look to the cross, we can let it flood our lives with the knowledge and the understanding of this. We have a new identity, new life in Christ, new status in him. How easily we forget this. The third thing that Paul squeezes into this little verse is that we have a new inhabitant in Christ. I was going to use the word lodger. Lodger seems a little bit irreverent, uh, a term to refer to the Holy Spirit who lives in us. But there is, with his presence, brand new potential. In Galatians 2.20, Paul uh, doesn't just say, I no longer live. He talks about some kind of replacement going on. He's like, I no longer live, but Christ lives in me. Isn't that a remarkable thought? That the God of all the universe, the God of all creation, the God of salvation lives in us. Weak vessels, jars of clay, fragile people. Yet he chooses to take up residence in our hearts. And do we see and understand what that actually means for us when it comes to change? 
that not only do we have a new identity and a new status, we have a new helper, new potential, one who comes alongside, one with the power that we don't have to open our eyes to the glories of the gospel, to see the implications on a day-to-day basis of the truth that he reveals to us, and to hold the perfections of Christ before us as if to say, here's what you're aiming for. Strive for it with the power that I supply, and I promise you, one day you'll have it. One day you'll see him, and you'll be like him as he is. Now here it says Christ, but we know that Christ lives in us by his Holy Spirit. Christ rules by his Spirit in the place where sin once ruled in our hearts. So when you come to Christ, we need to understand that we are radically changed though the process itself can be slower. It's an ongoing, progressive thing. Sticky and hard at times. But the fact is, God is personally present and wonderfully at work in our sanctification. So you see just how much hope is tied up for us in that one verse. That when we're in the midst of blessing but taking our eyes off the cross or in the midst of hardship and still taking our eyes off the cross, we can re Calibrate our thinking, recalibrate our hearts, recenter our focus on the cross and who we are in Him. So, the appeal for us in this part of the model, the appeal for us from Scripture is if you're a Christian and you're weighed down by guilt and struggling to change, Or if you're doing all right and then you've suddenly realized, you know what, I am doing this for my own glory and for my own benefit. (gasps) Don't wallow in that. Take it straight to the cross, straight away. And as you look to Christ crucified, remember who you are. I can't ever say that without thinking about the Lion King. You've seen the Lion King. Simba's wandering around in some selfish wilderness. He's not living up to his kingship. And all the while, someone else is ruling his life, the life that he's meant to be living as the king over the Pride Lands. And then Rafiki, that mandrel monkey, practicing its martial arts, tells him what he has to do. But crucial to Simba's action, it's not just get up, go back to the Pride Lands, and get rid of Scar. Crucial to Simba's actions is pondering his identity. He's the true king. Remember who you are. When you remember your identity in Christ, it shapes who you are and fundamentally how you act. Now that's what this cross provides for us in the heat of blessing or hardship. What difference that would have made to Joel, remember? In the first three years of his Christian life, you might call the performance years. He would have seen that the cross isn't just the doorway into the Christian life, but the bread and butter of it. The daily is something you need daily. He wouldn't live as if Jesus was the one who got him into this new status and now it's up to him. How often we live like that. He would not have expected the kind of perfection or that his heart would be trial-free. He would not have been so proud and self-righteous, for the cross doesn't allow that. It humbles every single person to the dust. 
And what a difference that would have made to Joe in the last two years of his Christian life. You might call the guilt-ridden years, the shame years. He would not have been distancing himself from God and from his people. He'd be realizing that God accepts him when he turns, and his people are the means of strengthening him. The cross reminds us of our identity, who we are, crucially helps us change. We've got to keep revisiting the cross. We've got to keep preaching the cross to ourselves daily. There's a fantastic book that was book of the month a a few months ago called Habits of Grace by David Mathis. He writes on desiringgod.org. Whatever he writes, read. It's good for your soul. But in his little book, Habits of Grace, he's got this little section at the end of a chapter on reading the Bible for change. And he says, warm yourself by the fires of meditation and slowly chew over 10 gospel verses. And he he gives you 10 different Bible verses to chew on. 10 verses that focus on the cross that you're meant to mull over and memorize and have in your arsenal ready to pull out when necessary. Remember the gospel. Preach it to yourself. Remember who you are, identity. Well, what does looking to the cross actually produce in us? How does it help us change? Well, it produces in us, number two, activity. It does Remembering these vital truths, these vital beliefs, leads to a type of behavior, changed behavior. And the activity that's produced by the gospel is this. It's repentance and faith. Now, repentance is about turning away from the old self and from these old sinful desires. It's seeing something as sinful for what it is and realizing, look, this is a wrong thing. Now, again, this is not just something that we do at the start of our Christian life. It ought to be done at the start of our Christian lives, of course, but it's a lifelong thing. Calvin called Christians a race of repentance. We do this on an ongoing basis, daily turning from sin, but also daily turning to and taking hold of what is true. This is where the faith aspect of this comes in. It's two sides of the same coin. It's two words to describe the one movement. You can't really turn from that window without turning to that one. That's repentance. That's faith. That's what we're called to do. Now, this living by faith is exactly what the Apostle Paul spoke about in Galatians 2 as well, when he said, the life I live in the body, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. Now, the simple understanding of that matter is you take what God says and you live like it's true. In amongst all the lies that our hearts tell us, that our desires drag us towards, we with our knowledge of God's word, say no to that ungodliness and yes to the truth. We say no to the lies and deceit of the devil or our desires. We say yes to the things that God says yes to. So life then becomes orientated not by our words, but by God's. Not by our interpretation of everyday situations, but by his. Not by the kind of things that we tell ourselves but by what he tells us. 
Have you ever found yourself committing a sin and then saying sorry for it in prayer to God because you're convicted of that sin? And at a later point, whether an hour or a day or two later, feeling convicted and guilt-ridden by it again and entertaining that guilt and allowing that guilt just to grow arms and legs and press you down in your faith. Well, you want to believe the lie of your feelings at that moment? Or do you want to take God at his word and live like that's true? For hasn't God said clearly that if we confess our sins, he's faithful and just to cleanse us and purify us from all unrighteousness. He has said that. So the question in those moments, the question in those moments is, who are you going to believe? Whose word are you going to rely on? Whose word are you going to put your faith in? Your own? Or him? Repentance and faith by those who live cross-centered, cross-shaped, cross-focused lives will take God at his words. How do we ground this? As we think about our own lives, it's important in these kinds of times to think about the the sins that you need to turn from? What things do you need to repent of? We thought last week about the thorns and the sinful root, the sinful heart that produces these. The thorns are consistent with what's in here. So what thorns can you see? What thorns have other people helpfully and kindly identified in you? If you could pick one sinful behavior you'd like to change, what would it be? Maybe it's easy for that to come to mind. Maybe you know it. Maybe you need help for someone else to point it out to you. Where do we need a revolution in our minds and in our hearts about sin that tempts us regularly? And even as you think about that one particular thing, think about what truths do you need to turn to? Because you're like, I am a Christian. I believe the gospel. I love Jesus for what he's done for me. He's completely flipped my life upside down. It makes no logical sense at this very basic analysis of my guilt-riddenness over this one thing to live like the lie's true instead of the truth that's true. It's illogical. But such is the pull of the sinful heart that it sees fit to punish itself as a means of righteousness rather than humbly repenting under God's welcoming grace and finding his every promise of love and grace and mercy to be true. Friends, it's a no-brainer, but we're dull. And we need help to remind each other of this all the time. I need you to take my head and turn it to the text that preached the cross to me. You need me to do the same. We need each other in this respect.
respect. The cross resets wonky thinking. The cross tells us how we should respond. Think over those sins. Talk to people about them. I don't care about how warm it is outside. It doesn't matter. Talk about the ways that God is at work to transform, whether over a slow, protracted period, or whether he's flipping the switch in something in your life. Talk about those things. And study the Bible. There are plenty of models to follow. An example of this is the prodigal son of Luke 15 that Adam read to us earlier on. What's the situation with this prodigal son? The prodigal son had a heart problem. He loved the thought of being so free to do what he wanted to do. So he made the independence, wealth, and having fun his idol. The thing that in his heart he thinks, I must have those things. And at the very same time, as he was loving these idols, he chose not to love those he ought to have loved, like his father. So what does he do? He asks for his inheritance up front, which is as good as saying, Dad, I want you dead. And then he heads off and squanders his wealth in wild living in some other place. And, as, and soon he finds out, what I hope we all find out about sin, is that it promises much but delivers little. It promises life and fulfillment but delivers death and disappointment because that's not the way life is meant to be lived. Now at this guy's lowest ebb, he is steeped in filth, pig filth, hungry for the food that's rummaging around the pig filth. Now that's a horrible picture, right? That is not a good situation to be in. Now what happens to him? What do you see him do? Well, the first thing you see, well, you see three things. The first thing is he wakes up. He comes to his senses, the Bible says. And how true it is that God often uses the heat of a particular difficulty that we are in in order to press the reset button on our thinking and on our living. He wakes up, he comes to his senses and thinks, what am I doing here? This could be so so different. But crucially, he doesn't just wake up, he owns up, doesn't he? He owns up to what he's done. He says, I know what I'm going to do, verse 18, I will set out and go back to my father and say to him, Father, I've sinned against heaven and against you. He's owning his guilt. He's not suppressing it. He's not thinking, right, I'm going to get myself out here. I'm going to dust myself off. I'm going to make myself a better man. I'm going to present myself to my dad, and he'll be really proud of me. No, he's crushed. He's low. He's in the filth, and he's done wrong. He knows he's there because in his sinful heart, he's produced the thorns like this. He is reaping the consequences of his decision. But here, having woken up and owned up, 
we see him do the best thing. He gets up. He remembers that his father is merciful. So he makes his way back to him. Now he reckons in his mercy, his dad's not gonna, dad's not gonna reject him, his dad's not gonna kill him, he's gonna welcome him in some respect, but maybe he'll make me a servant. Maybe he'll make me somebody low. So there's a deep sense of the man's recognition of his own situation. He remembers his father is merciful, hopeful that he might be allowed to be a servant, but when he gets there, he's reminded. He's a son. And he runs. He sees his dad running to him. He thought he'd meet a frown. He thought he'd need mercy. He does. But he sees joy at a sinner repenting. He sees and receives his father's embrace. This boy cannot even get his, I'm sorry, I've sinned against heaven and against you, speech out. And his dad's like, quick, everyone, best robe, best ring, fatted calf, we're having a party. All these images of sonship, get these rags off this man. He's not dead anymore. He's alive. What an incredible picture of what people who have not yet believed in Jesus must do to be saved. This is a call for anyone who has not put their faith and trust in Christ yet to do this. Wake up. Realize that the life we're living without God, we might be happily independent of him, but that's not the way life is meant to be lived. We're meant to be living as his children, as his friends, not as his enemies, nor as children of his enemy. So we own up, we confess our sin, we admit it, knowing that he invites us to do so. He's demonstrated his willingness to hear us repent in that way because he sent his son Jesus to die on a cross for our sins. What greater assurance of love can someone offer you than to send his own son to his death? A death that not only proves his love by putting it on display, but removes God's wrath from us. We don't face punishment. We don't face the frown or the wagging finger when we repent and believe the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ. We receive the loving embrace. Have you done that? If you've not looked into who Jesus is, or what this gospel that I'm talking about now, this good news is, please do. It's life transforming like you've no idea. I've got down here a bunch of books I'd like to give away tonight. One is a New Testament. If you don't have one, you'd like to read more about the life of Jesus, I'd be really glad to give you a copy of those. They're sitting down here. And a book called A Fresh Start by John Chapman, which just goes a little bit into more detail on what this gospel is and how we respond. It explains what repentance and faith looks like. Dig into it. Think about it. If you're not a reader, don't let that put you off. Speak to the person who brought you. Ask them to explain it. Just say, right, explain it to me in simple terms. What is the gospel? And let them give it a good go. It's the best news ever. It changes your life. And what a picture this prodigal son is of what Christians 
even Christians like us, who tend to be incapacitated by our own guilt and shame and self-righteousness and our proud works. This is what we as Christians need to do to be changed. When we focus on the cross, we're much more willing, having been reminded of our identity, to practice the activity of cross-centered faith, repentance, and faith daily, every day. We wake up, we own up, we get up, we go to God for that forgiveness, knowing that therefore there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. We recognize that if anybody does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous one. He's the atoning sacrifice for our sins, and not only for ours, but for the sins of the whole world. Is the cross central in your life, revisited daily? Is the cross a crucial part of you thinking about how you change, how you grow to be more like Jesus? The Bible says, without question, it does. Nothing else can do it. Explore it more, please. Week one has just passed for the Real Change course. Dig into it. Join up. Speak to David or Alison. The details are in the bulletin if you don't manage to grab one of them tonight. And where are the men? There are only two men on it. There are hardly any men who've gone through the course the whole time. Do men not need to change? My wife would tell you differently. We all do. And I dare say we need to take a lead in it. I want to finish with a quote from Horatius Bonner on the invitation that there is in the gospel for us to repent and believe on an ongoing basis. The language is a bit yieldy, but think about this. No gloomy uncertainty as to God's favor can subdue one lust or correct our crookedness of will. In other words, don't lack faith. But the free pardon of the cross uproots sin and it withers all its branches. Only the certainty of love, forgiving love, can do this. Free and warm reception into the divine favor. It's the strongest of all motives in leading a person to seek change, conformity to him who has freely forgiven them all trespasses. A cold admission into the paternal house by the father might have repelled the prodigal, sent him back to his lusts. But the fervent kiss, the dear embrace, the best robe, the ring, the shoes, the fatted calf, the festal song, all without one moment suspense or delay, as well as without one upbraiding word, could not awaken shame for the past and true-hearted resolution to walk worthy of such a father and of such a generous pardon.
revelings, banqueting, abominable idolatries. Come to be the abhorrence of him round whom the holy arms of renewed fatherhood have been so lovingly thrown. Sin has lost its relish for those who've tasted life. It's beautiful. Nothing else is worth living for. It's a no-brainer. Come to him. Remember who you are. Be active in faith and repentance. Change by his grace.